0: Good morning, everybody. I'm Joe Lichty. I'm Professor of Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies here at Goshen, and it's my pleasure to introduce both the C. Henry Smith Peace Lecture and the lecturer, who is Trevor Bechtel, Assistant Professor of Religion at Bluffton University. But first, C. Henry Smith. He was an outstanding, groundbreaking Mennonite historian who taught at Goshen College from 1908 to 1913 and then at Bluffton College for a very long run, 1913 to 46. He established a trust from which Goshen College benefits in a variety of ways, all of them related to peace. There is extra money for peace-related books in many disciplines in the library, for peace-related activities, for the peace oratorical contest for students and so on. And since 1975, one of these benefits is that the trust directors um, grant one award per year for peace-related research by faculty at Mennonite colleges, principally uh, Goshen and Bluffton. The award has done much to stimulate research that might otherwise have been difficult or even impossible. And since its introduction, the list of lecturers is distinguished and the topics have been innovative. And that brings us to today's lecturer, Trevor Bechtel. He is married to Susan Huntsberger. They have a cat named Nemo, uh, named excuse me, not Nemo, Nico, named after Nico Case, as I guessed correctly, although Trevor has since discovered that's also Japanese for cat. Who knew? Now, I'm pretty sure that Trevor has a PhD and he writes books and articles and does other prof things you're supposed to stuff your resume with. Uh, But when I wrote to him asking for biographical details, that's not what he chose to send. And I learned instead what I will pass on to you. Uh, Some of it, that his favorite food is cheese, his favorite sport is ultimate frisbee, his hobby is music. He relaxes by listening to music. His favorite music is the work of Canadian folk artist Bruce Coburn. Um, His most encouraging scripture is Revelation 21 and following, that description of the New Jerusalem. And then focusing in on matters directly related to Trevor being here today, he lists as his most meaningful accomplishment a CD of every creature he issued with his band Anabaptist Bestiary Project, a group of Bluffton students who perform Trevor's songs with him. These are songs about how God reveals God's will for human life through animals. And his most meaningful memory? performing with that band. So you know that what we're hearing today comes from deep in his heart as he speaks to us on the already peaceable kingdom, a bestiary of peaceable living. Trevor, welcome to Goshen College.
1: Good morning. It's it's really good to be with you here um, today. Um, It's really good to be in Goshen. Uh, My father went to college here. Um, My wife grew up in this town and went to college here. Most of my my memories of Goshen are are then one step removed, um, but there are nonetheless a lot of fond memories. Of the many gifts that animals give us, perhaps none is greater than the ability to look at life from a different point of view, We recognize this in a phrase like a bird's eye view. We recognize this in our practice when we trust seen-eye dogs. If we want to approach the animal themselves, we might also need a sideways approach. I know that this is very useful when I want to pick up my cat. My study of animals over the last five years has followed this sideways approach. By forcing myself to think inside the simplicity of a pop song, like the ones that were played uh, just before this lecture, I have been learning anew the beauty of God's creation, even in places where I don't expect to find it. The final song that you heard, and the lyrics here are up on the screen, takes a sloth's eye view of the rest of creation. And a lecture on peaceable living in creation has no better place in which to begin than with the sloth, probably the most peaceable of all of God's creatures. I am also honored to give this year's C. Henry Smith Peace Lecture. C. Henry was deeply interested in the well-being of Mennonite higher education, and also in the well-being of the cities that he lived in. He had a broad vision. It might not be exactly the sideways vision that I'm proposing to you now, but I hope that my vision at least fits into his. This sideways glance has many benefits in terms of shifting our vision, but the reorientation required to see this way can cause some stumbling. I might end up stepping on some toes. I hope that you can be agile listeners, getting out of the way when necessary, letting me know uh, when you did or couldn't um, in an opportunity to interact with me later today. To be clear, my only presumed expertise um, today is as a narrative theologian of human-animal interaction. So to intensify our sideways focus, I'd like to play a clip from Oscar host extraordinaire, Ellen. So can we get volume on this?
2: I immediately was overcome and I thought, there's a sloth near. There's a sloth here, it's close, it's gonna happen. And I start to have a full-fledged panic attack. I don't don't know how to compete with all this emotion, so I just kind of crawl up on the bed, and I'm crying so hard, and Dax knocks on the door, and he has a video camera, and he's like, surprise, I want you to come on to the, are you alright? And sees me basically fetal on the bed, and I um. I think you brought a little I footage did. of that. It's I, embarrassing. I cannot because, wait to see it's it. It's worth watching. Yes, it's embarrassing. So we can take a look. Oh, there's a little slot. There, one is. All right, let's watch the. Uh, oh no! <laughs> I wasn't joking. I was absolutely. <laughs> No, I feel I don't know. I'm scared. I mean, I'm not scared, but what if it was really a sloth this time? Well, what if you and and her name is Lola? How weird is that? Come on out! No, it's really the sloth, Lola. Don't get too close, Hi, because they move really quick, Well, they so. do bite. Yes, they do. And they, have, so. they do have, uh, look at their teeth. I don't know look. if you can get a shot of it, but they have teeth yeah. like bats, oh, oh, like yeah. really yeah. You strong. have to put it right in your
1: mouth. These moments, <laughs> leading up to Ellen DeGeneres surprising Kristen Bell by bringing her face to face with a sloth, are just two of many internet famous animal moments. They are pretty fun to watch. And I'm not sure that I would have responded any differently if Joe had surprised me with a sloth here today. We are entering a time, both in popular media and in the university, in which we are again, for the first time in several hundred years, open to the lives of animals and the impact that animals have on our lives. And we are doing it with knowledge of the lives of animals, their capacities, their behavior, genetic histories and ecology that exceeds anything that we have ever known. We are also doing it at a time when the science that gives us this knowledge increasingly seeks to divorce itself from traditional wisdom about the virtues and values that lead to a good life. Furthermore, we are doing it in an era of unprecedented attacks on life of all kinds by the needs and greed of human populations across the globe. This presentation is going to look at a variety of these relationships, at points paying very close attention to highly particular stories, like the time Kristen Bell met a sloth on Ellen, and at other points, thinking in categories that are much more broad, like predation or domestication. My thesis is that our Mennonite ideas of peace and theories of pacifism generally would benefit from a similar attention. That understanding peaceableness in the animal kingdom is a process of seeing peaceable living wherever it surfaces across these stories. So my approach is sideways, but it's also synoptic. Collecting stories that see together God's peaceful witness in nature. To see synoptically involves a kind of resistance. It's a sight that sees through dualisms and sees beyond popular distinctions. We begin with the story of the sloth. A world unto themselves, sloths approach the ordinary tasks of life in unique ways. They live the vast majority of their lives in trees, and they move very slowly. So slowly that moss and insects grow in the sloth's coat. Their extreme slowness, natural camouflage, and arboreal home provide an interesting response to predation. They are difficult enough to see that they can almost totally avoid predation. Their only predators are harpy eagles, who might spot them through the canopy, especially if the sloth decides to do some sunbathing, and jaguars, who need to find them on the ground. And, of course, humans who will poach them for their meat. Sloths have rigid, curved claws, which allow them to simply hang from trees without effort. These claws are so effective that sloths may cling from the trees even after death, sometimes frustrating the efforts of poachers. These same claws make travel on the ground very difficult, and any time a sloth ventures to the ground it's very vulnerable to attack. However, given that these same claws are not a hindrance in water, sloths are surprisingly good swimmers. There are two families of sloths currently living in the world and although they are quite similar they are probably both descended from different species of ground sloths and they chose to live in the trees independently. Kristen Bell met a two-toed sloth on Ellen. That's because Lola ate a banana, and two-toed sloths eat a variety of foods. But three-toed sloths are folivores, animals specialized in eating only leaves. Leaves have little nutritional value and a high proportion of cellulose, which is difficult to digest. However, given some recently discovered adaptation, the three-toed sloths are actually much more interesting to us. There has long been a delicate mystery surrounding three-toed sloths. They descend from their trees weekly to produce a small, hard, puck-sized feces. They always neatly and perhaps prudishly bury this in the same place at the base of their tree. This predictability adds vulnerability to an already dangerous journey, and it takes a significant amount of energy. Why do three-toed sloths do this? I mentioned that sloths sustain remarkably verdant micro in their coat. In addition, the moths and algae, there are two guilds of insects that live on the sloth. One guild, the haemovores, feeds on the sloth's blood, and includes a variety of ticks, flies, mites, and lice. They are parasites. The other guild, the coprovores, feeds on the sloth's feces, and includes a unique grouping of beetles and moths. Many coprovores are commensal, that is, they benefit from their host without causing any harm. The sloth's coprovores benefit in receiving both food and transport. There are several different kinds of sloth moths, and more than a hundred moths will live on the sloth's coat at once, on, on a single sloth. One kind of moth, found only on three-toed sloths, takes advantage of their host's prudishness. When the sloth descends from the tree to defecate, the female moth leaves her eggs in the sloth's feces. When the eggs hatch, the larvae eat the theses and then fly back up the tree to find the host sloth as adults. Now this is an interesting enough story, but it doesn't resolve the question about why the three toed sloths themselves don't take the easier route of defecating from the trees as their two-toed cousins do. It turns out that the sloths are also benefiting from having this specialized moth on board. The moths release nitrogen and engage in other activity that encourages the growth of a specialized kind of algae that the sloth in turn eats, augmenting their main and very ascetic food source. To put it simply, sloths encourage moths to farm algae in their hair so that they can improve their diet. Or sloths, by engaging in community building with moths, reap an unexpected reward these sloths and moths are not just commensal, they are mutualistic. Both benefit from the relationship. Now we certainly recognize that the sloth is a peaceful creature. It eats leaves, but sustainably. It's often even a good locovore, restricting most of its feeding to just around one tree. It fosters a home for whole communities of sympathetic moths. In turn, the moths model their own lives on the sloth, staying calmly in one place, fostering further specialized communities of algae. Stepping forth more boldly, we can learn from the sloth that violence can often be defeated through patient but non-intuitive tactics. By specializing in neither fight nor flight, the sloth has found a truly peaceful way to live in the world. By being naturally tenacious, the sloth can resist violence, depriving a would-be murderer of their reward. Why do we Mennonites not have icons of sloths at the front of our churches, or at least felt banners? One of the reasons is that when we think of nature, we don't think of the sloth. Our dominant picture of nature is red in tooth and claw. When we think of nature, we think of the lion hunting on the savanna or the bear skillfully eating salmon. Evolution, the science of nature, has typically been first about competition and the survival of the fittest and not the calm cooperation epitomized by the sloth. This brings us to the first distinction that animals show us how to see beyond. Nature is not inherently violent. As pacifists, We are committed both to a future and to a reality that is marked by the inbreaking of the reign of God. We emphasize stories of peace, of the overcoming of violence, and of restoration and justice against stories of war, conflict, and exploitation. We choose our stories. We do this because we believe that reality is not inherently violent. We do not believe in a violent God But peace theology sometimes has attributed a kind of naturalness to violence that, I would argue, is not inherent in the natural world. We have sometimes done this to oppose Jesus' message of peace to the violent world that crucified him. Jesus moved beyond violence, but not beyond nature. Jesus rejected violence as a natural person. He also rejected violence as a supernatural or divine person, but his divinity did not overwhelm his naturalness in allowing him to reject violence. We emphasize Jesus' story partly because it is a story of peace. Peace and salvation fit together in our telling of Jesus' story. Our commitment to understanding ecologies means that we have been more nervous to emphasize stories of peace with animals. But these stories are some of the most beautiful ones. This brings us up. This is Alchin the snake. He wasn't eating well. He was typically fed dead mice and his keeper wondered if some live food would help. The keeper got a hamster, named him Gohan, Japanese for meal, and put him in Aichin's enclosure. Instead of eating Gohan, the two became friends. Gohan will climb into Aichin's coals, and Aichin seems to enjoy the company. In a small rural village in India, people were surprised one night to observe a leopard come next to a cow and nestle into her. The cow licked the leopard. The two settled in together. It's happened for a week. Um... This polar bear visited this sled dog every night for a week. I encourage you to look at the book Unlikely Friendships or its sequel, the more optimistically entitled Unlikely Loves, to read more of these stories. When we are willing to tell these stories as stories of peace, there is more that we can notice about the sloth, the relationship between the sloth and the moths is more peaceful than the relationship between the sloth and the ticks. It is a peace, it is, it, it is more peaceful relationship and it deserves to become a model story of peaceful living. While the relationship between the ticks and the sloth, a relationship which depletes the sloth of energy and causes pain, does not Contemporary evolutionary biology also emphasizes the comparative advantages that working together grants organisms. In nature, it is not only the fittest creatures that survive, but also the ones who can live peaceably together. So what do we do with the story of the tick if we do not emphasize it? It is not a peaceful story. It is a story of parasitism. Parasitism is the ugly cousin of predation. And you'll want to trust me that parasitism is ugly. You don't want to make me tell you where the ticks live. But predation and parasitism are mechanisms by which evolutionary processes happen. They are also natural. Nature is not inherently violent, but it is violent. So if I want to continue to tell you stories about peaceable living in nature, which I do, then I need to respond to natural violence. And I will get to this. However, before I can do this, I need to notice another distinction that arises when we bring animal predation and human violence alongside each other, the scepter of anthropomorphism. It's going to be a bit of a distraction, but it will also be fun. Anthropomorphism happens when we attribute so-called human qualities to non humans. Calling a dog loyal would be a good example. For that matter, calling a sloth peaceful could also count. For a long time, science would refuse any kind of emotion to animals in the interest of objectivity. Through their study of the great apes, Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and Birut Mary Galdikos reversed general opinion on the role of empathy in seeing objectively. They were able to discern personality, mood, and a rich set of emotions in the chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans that they lived alongside. Fears about anthropomorphism are in sharp decline throughout the academy. The story of Hachiko demonstrates this point. In 1924, a professor at the University of Tokyo took in a dog named Hachiko. Every day, Hachiko would go down to the Shubuya train station and wait for the professor. The professor suffered a cerebral hemorrhage in 1925 and stopped going to the train station. But Hachiko kept going although the humans at the train station could be rude to him. In 1932, interested in Hachiko's breed, Hakita, a dog that's very closely related to wolves, one of the professor's former students followed Hachiko back to the professor's gardener's home. The gardener explained the story of Hachiko to the student, who eventually wrote a story and published it in a Tokyo newspaper. Hachiko became famous in Japan for his loyalty. He died in 1935. He was stuffed and put into the National Science Museum in Japan. A statue was erected. Hachiko became the exemplar of loyalty in Japan. Children and others were encouraged to follow his example. I went to the Mosaic Cultures exhibition in Montreal last summer. Hachiko was the Japanese entry. There are stories of human loyalty which may meet Hachiko's example, but none exceed it. The professor and Hachiko connected for a little bit longer than a year before the professor died. But then Hachiko remained loyal for seven years before even receiving any acclaim. Hachiko is one of the most important persons that you can talk about when you talk about loyalty. He's obviously very famous. That was supposed to be, yeah, there, all right. I suspect that that the statue of the professor at Tokyo University is there not because of his own initiatives but because of his connection to Hachiko. The professor was not stuffed and put into a museum. And next to his grave is another memorial to Hachiko. Loyalty is not even first a human quality, let alone something we should be worried about attributing wrongly. What is the key difference between the story of the sloth and the story of Hachiko? This may even be a reason for thinking that Hachiko's story doesn't have as much authority as the story of the sloth. This may have been bothering you since the Ellen video. One difference is that Hachiko is an individual like Lola the sloth. Typically, when we think about animals, we regard them as a species. If we want to know the sloth as a sloth, then we know it as we observe it, preferably from a distance, in its natural habitat, and we generalize. I shared with you the things that are common about the species. We generally think that this is adequate to know the animal. When Kristen Bell met Lola, that didn't count. Lola is just one sloth in a television studio. At this point, we are prepared to notice a further distinction. Lola is a particular sloth. Ellen named her as an ambassador, a sloth who has come from her world into ours to show us the importance of her natural habitat. Lola is unusual, but she is not necessarily more different than two sloths in the wild might be. Anyone who has spent time with animals recognizes this. My direct competence with animals comes from relationships that I have had with two cats. Tiamat, who died three years ago, was very ornery, very talkative, and very creative. She seemed to have developed a rich language of instruction, which I regularly failed to understand. Much of my ability to pay attention to animals now comes from the lessons that she taught me. Nico, the cat that I live with now, is very loving, quite skittish, and very fond of music. At night, my wife often sings an old gospel song, and Nico comes running, eager to listen, and insistent on being pet. I know that when you have met one cat, you have met exactly that, one cat. It can be useful to, to recognize the things that animals have in common, that cats have in common, but until we remember that each animal is unique, we're not able to understand them or their stories. Another difference is that Hachiko and Lola the sloth are, in different ways, domesticated animals. It has been popular not to pay attention to domesticated animals when thinking about nature because they are seen instead as an artifact of human culture. Their lives are seen as too shaped by their human owners. The dog was the first animal to be domesticated and this occurred at least 14,000 years ago based on fossil evidence. It's probably the case that dogs have had as much impact on human societies as humans have had on dogs. We are by far the most social primate. Much of our society is very canine in its shape. Humans are interested in being in groups. We share food and parental care broadly, being interested not just in our offspring but in the welfare of the group. We are interested in the structure of the group interested in welcoming strangers and casting out misbehaving kin. We work well as a team, being able to focus our attention on each other as individuals and cooperate in ways that brings out the best in each. In each of these characteristics we are very much like wolves, but very much unlike most apes who are typically selfish and individualistic. According to Schleit and shelter. It's possible to re-envision the history of both human and canine evolution, bringing them into much more close relationship. As humans separated from apes around six million years ago and came into open spaces of the forest, they eventually practiced pastoralism, following large herds of reindeer. Another apex predator was already doing this, the wolf and the humans may have adopted the wolf's practice of pastoralism. One theory holds that dogs separated from wolves as part of this process as late as 135,000 years ago. Domestication is perhaps only after the fact about the human control of animal life. It is also possibly just as natural as our species. There is more to notice here though The meeting of wolf and human was based on sociality, on cooperation, and on teamwork. The work of living together for human and dog is now often entirely wrapped up in mutual admiration. In a different context, it would be nice for me to stop lecturing right now and solicit you all for dog stories. It would not interrupt the flow of my argument, and that's not just because I've been all over the place. Dogs and humans live well together, and not just dogs, but also cats and sheep and goats and cows and horses. Humans introduced squirrels into cities so that young boys could learn the value and compassion of kindness in the public sphere, just as domestic pets did in the home. Squirrels are not exactly domesticated, but they are not exactly wild either. The longer we look at domestication, the more we realize that it is not a stable category. See what I did there? Shrek the sheep is a good example of this. Before acquiring his name, Shrek was part of a flock of sheep in Otago region on the southeastern edge of New Zealand's southern island. He gained international fame in 2004 after avoiding being caught and shorn for six years. (laughs) He found ways, probably hiding in caves, to avoid muster, that time when highly trained sheepdogs moved sheep from pastures into pens to be shorn or receive medical attention. Shrek was shorn and his fleece contained enough wool to make suits for 20 men. It weighed 27 kilograms, fully six times as much as an ordinary merino fleece. Shrek was able to survive partly because there are no real predators for a sheep who gets loose in New Zealand. The only indigenous mammal is a small bat. In fact, this seems more or less to have been the strategy when sheep were brought to New Zealand. They were entirely free-range, and the farmers went to the sheep. While sheep farming is now much more organized, there are still a number of feral flocks in New Zealand. And as researchers learn more about them, they are realizing that they might hold opportunities for medical research, given their unique genes. If domestication is not a stable category, we see in the story of Shrek um, that even, even the, well, okay, I'm just going to skip that. The basic categories that we live that we use for um, domestic animals are domestic, stray, and feral. In some senses, Shrek has been all three of these, having lived in captivity, escaped it, and then thrived in the wild. But because of his genetic distance from wild sheep and the fact that no sheep are indigenous to New Zealand, he will never be called wild. Sometimes we talk about a domestic species going feral, and once the animals have gone feral, redomestication is impossible. Domestic cats are a really good example of this. When humans reintroduce a species into an area that was once um, that it was once in natively but it became extinct and as they've done successfully with sea eagles and beavers in the United Kingdom, they are usually thought of as simply wild even though they may have been extinct for hundreds of years. These projects are called rewilding. So the idea of what nature and natural space is has really significant impacts on our language and practice around these projects. And they become flashpoints in scientific and public debates. While I was in New Zealand, I learned of a group of people that wanted to exterminate all of the cats that had gotten loose in New Zealand because they hurt the birds. They're, this is the cats to go website and they're opposed by an equally vocal group that want to allow the cats to stay, who even think that the cats are working animals and know how to distinguish between birds and um, other unuseful animals. Cats to stay website. An even stronger example of this comes from this interaction between the polar bear and the dog that I showed you earlier. What do you think of these pictures? Are they cute, peaceful, vicious, natural? When these images were first taken, humans hated them. They were sure that the interaction immediately preceded the bear viciously killing and eating the poor dog, who was chained up like bait. A bear is a bear, after all. And a chained dog, while not without options self-defense-wise, is not a heavy favorite going in. The photographer didn't release these images broadly. Now after 13 years of Coca-Cola advertisements and a growing knowledge of polar bears' vulnerability, and more importantly, I hope, better knowledge of the body language of dogs and both our ability to read that language and the optimism that polar bears could read that language, humans now love these pictures. They recently went viral on the internet. This is a story of peace but also a story of the importance of human culture for understanding animals, both from our perspective and from the animal's perspective. So um, is the story of Shrek a story of peace? He avoided muster for six years and therefore resisted the control of his human captors. And something about his story resonated very deeply with people. Hachiko is morally excellent, and we cling to him because we need to know how to be loyal. Dog loyalty is superior to human loyalty. Sloths and moths are are, are, um, morally excellent, and we cling to them because they excel at things we care about being able to do. Avoid violence, build community, even with those very different than ourselves. But can peace theology address feral cat colonies who kill native birds, or even stray cats, or outside cats who kill for a hobby? Nico doesn't go outside, but she's been in homes where there are mice, or, well, at least there were mice in those homes. I believe we can do this with a very nuanced understanding of evil. Moral theologians have traditionally divided evil into two kinds, natural and moral. Natural evil is when something really bad happens, but without the cause of a human agent. Hurricanes and earthquakes are the classic example. They cause huge suffering, but beyond noticing some of the ways that human habits worsen the disaster, everyone knows that it's no one's fault, unless maybe it's God's. Moral evil is brought about by human action or depraved inaction. If I took out a gun and shot one of you, that would count. So is predation natural evil, or are predators moral evil? My answer is both. Suffering is a regular part of life, and inside its ordinary warp and woof, predation is natural suffering. Prey and predator species have evolved together, and the balance between them is as it should be. But even predation can be deformed. Many dolphins are massively creative killers. It makes sense for pacifists to set ourselves against dolphins. Some animals are cruelly mistreated and lash out in violence in response. Humans and dogs are prime examples of this. Some sin rests on the violent actor, but probably more rests on the initial abuser. Both of these sins are morally evil, whether it is a dog or a human who is lashing out. What about domestication? There is definitely a component to domestication that involves suffering for the domesticated animal. Whether we learned it from wolves or not, humans are incredibly nurturing species. Our ability to care not just for our family, but also strangers, and even pets, is morally excellent. Human nurturing was probably a significant driver behind the process of domestication. Baby animals, as the internet has shown us, are incredibly cute. We want to take care of them and babies are even easier to domesticate than adults. Cuteness as a strategy works particularly well for pets. There are very few examples of species other than humans that keep pets. Except perhaps for cats. The domesticated house cat is so successful at the inanities of domesticated life that many of us who live with cats recognize that the question of who is the owner and who is the pet is mostly academic. So parts of domestication are probably morally good. When domestication is a story of mutual care, as is certainly the case with the protected sheep who gives wool to the farmer, it becomes a story of peace. Parts of domestication, in a similar way to the parasitism of the tick, are not peaceful. An example would be the consumption of meat, but I don't think that the consumption of meat is morally evil either. The long pattern of domestication is that we eat animals for meat. We could stop doing this, but not without destroying whole species of animals, which is probably not any less violent. We have, in a way, become like ticks in a world that we have created for ourselves and has become dependent on blood or even flesh. But that doesn't mean that we cannot find stories of peaceable living among animals and look again to the day when the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the human will again learn from them. So, I've told you stories of domestication, predation, stories about dogs and cats and sloths. I've looked for a way to find the good in these stories. And I hope that you've been able to think of these stories as stories of peace. I haven't told you how to behave. So, if I can have a few more minutes to conclude. Yeah? Awesome. I'll do that. These aren't exactly a, Buzz- a BuzzFeed top 10 list, um, but I do have more pictures. So, you should um, eat meat. Many domestic species, and more importantly, many individual animals only live because we consume them as meat. The lives of sheep and humans have been bound together in this way for thousands of years. It's a remarkable successful evolutionary strategy. I'm not saying that vegetarianism is bad. I'm not saying that eating meat is bad either. But to do this, you need to support humane farming. For meat eating to remain natural suffering, it needs to be humane. The animals need to be able to live happy lives in environments that provide them with the resources to be the kinds of creatures God intended them to be. A challenging question, especially if you are a New Zealand sheep rancher, is whether or not this includes the opportunity to hide from muster. Most importantly, we need to return to our practices of humane slaughtering, or to be honest in our language, the murdering of our meat. Following from that, never eat factory farmed meat. Industrial farming is probably the single most evil practice in the history of the world. Genocide in human context is widely recognized as a deep evil. Factory farming is a similar, maybe even a worse kind of evil. In a factory farm, we breed animals, we force them to live short, crippled lives indoors, often without inadequate or without any space to move, and then kill them so cruelly that the humans who do the killing suffer marked mental anguish. And then we do it all over again on a cycle of endless repeat. It is worse than the worst dystopian science fiction, and all of it happens behind closed doors, away from the public. Laws before the US Congress now will make it an act of terrorism to breach the defenses of a factory farm. Relative value is often a red herring in ethics, even from the herring's perspective. No amount of diminution of a battery hen's value relative to the human. No amount of diminution of a battery hen's value relative to human life will create a utilitarian calculus that makes factory farming okay. Finally, um, don't hunt. Sorry, finally, own a pet. The best way to practice the sideways vision um, that the life of an animal offers is to live with one, to notice its way of being in the world, even from the vantage point of your house. Thank you for your patience.
0: Before I dismiss you, three opportunities to talk to Trevor. At lunch, uh, he'll be in the cafeteria. Feel free to join him. Anybody, students, members of the public, he will be in WISE 308 working this afternoon. He would love to be interrupted by you to talk with you. Let's say 1 to 4.30 or so. Then he's repeating this lecture at 7.30 this evening, the difference, at least half an hour, 45 minutes for open discussion between the audience and Trevor. Thanks, Trevor, you're dismissed.